One of uh, the stories that I remember hearing, I think from Marv Wolfman, about Steve Ditko was him going to visit Steve Ditko when I think Steve was living above a, a thrift store uh, somewhere in New York. And um, they'd had a pleasant conversation. And before uh, Marv Wolfman left, Steve Ditko said, I just want to show you something. And he took a, a little white, empty calling card and took a magic marker, drew a line down the middle and shaded one half of the card in black and said, there is white and there is black and there is nothing in between. Welcome back to Midnight Grappler Animals, home of Flub Nation. I'm your host, Lan, and with me, I've got a man who only thinks in black and white, not gray. Salt and Bank. How you doing, Salt? I'm good. I'm here to tell you, M is M. M is M? Is A, A is A? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's good to yeah. know. It's, it's good to, to know. What is black? What is white? What is wrong? What is right? If if that's if you get anything from this episode, uh, we that, endorse that, that's not all the, of oh, objectivism. No, okay. We're we're endorsing all libertarianism. That's yes. that's what's going on here today. We also endorse the Michael Jackson song "Black and White," <laughs> which is I think the exact opposite message of what what Steve Ditko was going for. But but yeah, it's uh it's been a long month. Uh, the month of the mask, and since that's over now, hopefully you listen to all of that. Uh, if you haven't, what are you doing? What are you doing? But yeah, we figured we'd take it a little easy this time and talk about the far-reaching consequences of objectivism and libertarianism in comics. We do not endorse a lot of Ditko's opinions, and in fact, we will be shitting upon a lot of this today. Um, so yeah, the episode is called Ditkoology, and yeah. Uh, so you brought this to me. I brought this, this to you. You because told me, I, I don't think you told me anything beyond. Oh, we're gonna do like an a la carte selection of five Ditko books. Yeah, I I've had a really long-standing fascination with Ditko. Nearly every Ditko expert is also like a crazy right winger like him. So that's something unique I think I'm bringing to the table is that I'm obsessed with Ditko in a way, but I'm at total odds with a lot of his philosophies. So that's that's mainly what we're working with here. Uh, what was your previous Ditko experience and what was it like for you to, to go into these Ditko selections? I mean, I had read pretty much the entirety of his tenure on Spider-Man. Um, and then I <clears throat> actually hadn't read any of his stuff with uh, Doctor Strange. And mm. then beyond that, it was just like small grab bag things. I had read Mr. A prior um, back when I was like very active in comics Facebook fandom. But yeah, aside from that, like I know where he stands politically and 
I had that understanding, but I I never had a full grasp of the evolution of his art, uh, as we're going to be looking into uh, this episode. Yeah, and that's mainly what we'll be doing today, is looking at those two aspects of Ditko, his his politics slash his philosophy and uh and his art and um would you say ditko is like maybe one of the first comics anti sjw's uh maybe one of the first i wouldn't say yeah. he is the first but i i think he was definitely coming up yeah, around of. that time yeah 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 I mean, he was definitely I, a front runner i should say yeah i mean he's he's influential is more what i'm getting at not that he's the first progenitor and i think that's a really fascinating angle too with you know with where we're at with comics gate and that kind of reactionary ilk is this is that dna in a sense uh, mm-hmm. a lot of those opinions start in these books steve ditko is synonymous with his most famous comic book creation spider-man along with much of spider-man's core cast and famous foes Plenty of well-researched accounts chronicling Ditko's embattled history with Stan Lee and Marvel can easily be found at your local library or online if you're looking for a primer on that chapter of Ditko's life. In particular, I'd recommend the 2007 BBC documentary In Search of Steve Ditko, which also serves as an investigative biography of Ditko's life. With that chapter of the Ditko mythos thoroughly explored by many others, we at Midnight Grappler Animals will mostly sidestep Ditko's Spider-Man work to explore some other iconic Steve Ditko creations. We're looking at five Ditko-created characters for the purpose of understanding Ditko's artistic legacy and political legacy. With Ditko's art, we'll be looking at artistic technique, poses, hatching, the infamous nine-panel grid. And then in Ditko's politics, we'll be looking at objectivism and also libertarianism's funny relationship to fascism. Now, I said we wouldn't be doing a lot of Spider-Man, but Lan, do you know the secret origin of Spider-Man's costume? Is this the Halloween costume origin or yeah, the Kirby yeah. origin? Okay. For the viewers, explain. There is a couple accounts of where Ditko gets the, the costume. And I'm glad you mentioned the Kirby one because I forgot. D- do you mind going to the Kirby one first, actually, just so we don't glance over that? Yeah, I think the, the cliff notes there is that Kirby had designed some iterations and, you know, had passed them off to Ditko afterwards, which then Ditko iterated upon. Um... Yeah, and then there was obviously contention later on as to like who actually came up with the idea. Kirby claimed that he also co-created Spider-Man and, you know, like the whole Lee element of it. But uh, yeah, I think the Halloween costume one is a bit more fun in that regard. Yeah, it's more fun and there's more going on there. Yeah, there's a there's a costume from a company called Ben Cooper, which is great because that sounds like a stan lee character name but uh this this ben cooper halloween costume company they uh produced this kids trick-or-treating costume that was i think it was just called a spider but you look up this this costume from the 1950s it's got a lot of the same motifs that ditko would end up using in spider-man so there's there's two points that i want people to have in their minds as we go into all these books uh one that uh, 
Ditko got a lot of his motifs, not just in costumes, but sometimes in the, the world building, from the world around him. He was a really astute observer. And then the other thing is uh, Halloween costumes, because that'll come back later. Anything else before we jump into our a la carte selections, as you called them? Uh, I think the only other thing is that I think you said five characters, but because of the way that our preparation for this ended up going, I think we were ended up we ended up landing on like seven. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, well, you you hold us, you hold us, you keep us honest, reader, listener. Yeah, what you can do is leave a review on your podcast oh, app of choice and see go. tell us if we were honest or if we were Yeah, please lying. only rate please only rate <laughs> us if, if if you like the show. Don't give us a bad rating even if our math is bad, you know, like you can mention that our math is bad. That's fine. Just please give us a positive review. Yeah, these guys bad at math, good at podcasting. Stuff like that. There we go. There we go. But yeah, let's uh, let's jump into it with our first Alucard selection, Strange Tales number one ten, which is the first appearance of one Doctor Strange. Uh, so this came out in April nineteen sixty three. By this point, Ditko had co-created Spider Man. He had written, uh, not written, but he had drawn three issues of Spider Man. The third issue of Spider Man actually came out the same day that this issue did. Um, so while, you know, everyone was getting introduced to Dr. Strange, Spider-Man was battling Doc Ock for the first time. Uh, by that point, Ditko had primarily been working on, uh, amazing adult fantasy, uh, Journey into Mystery, Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, and Strange Tales. Uh, pretty much he was a regular, uh, he was either working on backups or the main story, uh, for this one specifically, he was actually working on the backup. The cover story for this issue is actually a Human Torch story. It's fighting Paste Pot Pete. Fighting Paste Pot Pete. Say that five times fast. Uh, but yeah, this one was a pretty short one. I think this might be our, our shortest one of the bunch. Yeah, we'll, we'll get through it pretty quick. I mean, one note I want to get out of the way is... Lee has given very candid accounts of, oh, Steve came to me with this crazy idea, and I said, all right. Like, it's just, it's really funny how much Lee did not believe in this idea, and then it's, oh, yeah. it ends up being one of their, their mainstays. I mean, the other funny thing is, like, the name Doctor Strange, too, because nowadays we know him as Stephen Strange, but I think Ditko was trying to go for just Doctor Strange. It was Lee... Yeah himself who yes. apparently ended up giving him the name Stephen Strange and you you have to wonder if with Lee's personality if that was meant to be a bit of a dig at Ditko like ah, oh, that Steve is a bit of a strange guy maybe that would be a very Stanley ass move to it do. would be yeah <laughs> strange Steve Ditko yes and then the <laughs> not wrong though um so you hadn't read this before what was it like for you going into this um, it was interesting because, you know, like, by now I'm familiar with all the characters, like the Ancient One, uh, Count Mordo, uh, or Baron Mordo, I should say, uh, as well as, you know, like, Wong and stuff. Wong isn't even given a name in this. Uh, the Ancient One is just the Master. Uh, and th this happens, it just ends pretty quickly. So, I ended up reading two 
well, uh, two issues of this, both 110 and one, uh, 111. And yeah, it was, it was interesting just to see where Steve Ditko was at artistically. Uh, like I said, this was around the same time that he put out, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number three, which I had read. Uh, so I went back and actually looked and compared his two different styles there and, it definitely feels like Ditko had wanted to run with this idea a bit more than he did with uh, Spider-Man. Um, yeah, the art here is, even for the time, it, it was something else. Yeah, the art is Ditko getting to really indulge in the dreamlike, which he's he's known for. And it's, it's good, but I personally felt like the more grounded scenes carried more tension like and that's not a dig like he just was figuring out how to get that dream stuff right started here i think he was definitely experimenting with the use of shadow here as well um yeah. like uh nightmare who also is introduced in this issue and looks uh, cool like as he's, fuck. he's in shadow for the majority of it uh you know like even when you've got the more grounded stuff he's still like layering on those heavy shadows uh mm -hmm. for for strange so you know like it, it definitely feels like ditko's starting to push himself beyond what he had been doing pretty much regularly uh prior to that moment yeah there's a lot of line choices here that people should really read this issue for because mm -hmm. the the hatching here is feels like one of his early hatching experiments and it's it's good it's really good but you see how much further he takes it later so it's exciting to see him start to play with those ideas here yeah um the other thing i, I remembered was the the dots on his gloves uh, yes. like nowadays he doesn't use uh or they don't use that style for for his costume anymore but uh Every now and then it pops up, and the the dots on the, the gloves are really fantastic. Yeah. We got the art out of the way, so I really only have one note, which is that Strange is clearly Chinese in this. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to get at. It's like, story-wise, it's really weird, because it, this isn't an origin story in the traditional sense. You know, like, you don't get any origin as to who Strange is or how he got his powers. We just know that the Master had entrusted the powers to him and you know like we see the eye of agamotto but you know obviously it's not called the eye of agamotto it pretty much feels like you are being dropped into issue like 20 something instead of uh instead of the first issue you know like <laughs> well when you think about like showcase which we'll get into soon but those issues feel like they're actually introducing you to the origin of the character before actually putting them on their adventure. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the amount of space that Ditko uh, was allotted here. But he, he completely forgoes the traditional origin story in favor of just dropping us into a story where Doctor Strange is Doctor Strange. People go to him for help. He helps people in the astral plane and then the story ends and then the next one is just him fighting uh mordo with a battle of wits yeah i didn't read that story you did what was that like you know it's like a fun 
oh, I managed to misdirect you, and while you were being misdirected, the master got away safely. That kind of that kind of story. It's good. It's good. <laughs> that's that's my bottom line here. Is like it's good. I think it would have been interesting to see how things would have played out if they actually delved deeper into strange being Asian instead of white. Just because the Orientalism here, there is obviously a degree of Orientalism here, but it doesn't feel like it has as negative of a bent as a lot of comics did around that time uh, with regards to Orient Orientalism. Uh, you know, like there's obviously the element of exoticism and, you know, like the, the whole mystic, mystic tantra and all that jazz, but like it doesn't portray any of the Asian characters in a bad light per se. Uh, and obviously, maybe future issues do do that, but yeah, for this one, it's it's like <laughs> congratulations, Steve Ditko. This is not the the most racist thing you've done. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about Doctor Strange before we move on? No, it's an right. interesting experiment. Cool. Let's move on to our next one. Now, I know you had suggested this one is just the latter of the two characters but i ended up reading both sides of this issue uh, what i'm talking about is blue beetle volume five number one uh which is not only the first appearance of the question which is the character that salt obviously wanted to talk about but it was also the first appearance of ted cord as blue beetle so i uh, ended up reading that part too and i i I don't really have too much to say. I can I can say a little bit about that, and then we can talk about the question. But I'll, I'll let you start with your opening blurb. Do you, do you hear that, readers? That's the sound of Land becoming a true Ditko head like myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting too Ditko deep here. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious on this Blue Beetle stuff, because I didn't read that part. But anyway, in the mid-1960s, the American superhero revival was in full swing. DC was revamping most of their classic Golden Age heroes like the Green Lantern, the Flash, and Hawkman, along with plenty of other new superheroes, while Marvel was matching or even surpassing DC's commercial output. Other publishers wanted in on the cash grab. Enter Charlton Comics. While the pay was substandard compared to what a creator could expect from the big two, work at Charlton came with one distinct advantage substantially less editorial oversight than Ditko had come to experience working with the likes of Stan Lee. Over at Charlton, Ditko was also participating in the superhero revival with characters like Blue Beetle, a reinvention of a C-tier Golden Age hero, and Captain Atom, a character whose name and costume cribbed heavily from Joker co-creator Jerry Robinson's Atom Man from the 1940s. And there was also The Question, who was molded less like a caped crusader and more like The Spirit, a childhood favorite of Ditko's. Ditko had left Marvel in 1966. I, I established a lot of that in that blurb. Is there anything else you think we need to say in terms of Ditko's background going from Marvel to Charlton? Um, well, this is three years or no four years since he had done doctor strange so there's a four-year difference obviously in in his art um right. the other thing is this had come out in june of 1967 uh and there's obviously uh 
uh, conflicting accounts uh, of what came out first, but uh, this also was around the time that he was doing Mr. A as well. So mm-hmm. there is an interesting comparison to that aspect of it. But yeah, uh, the, the, the Charlton aspect of it is definitely the, the most interesting part here because it definitely feels like Ditko is being allowed to let loose with his ideas here. And um, I think in the case of Blue Beetle, it actually works quite a bit. And in the question, it works to a lesser extent, but <laughs> definitely more than it did with Mr. A, which we'll, we'll yeah. get into. Yeah. I think one interesting difference in Charlton is how dog shit the books are. And I'm not talking about the creators or the creators' ideas. I'm talking about the actual quality of the material. The production quality, yeah. Yeah. There, <laughs> it's awful. There's, <laughs> there's a funny thing here where in the credits, the inside credits, it says it's been lettered by A machine like a dot machine (laughs) obviously i assume that that's a pun but (laughs) just that's they knew they knew exactly you know like how how low quality the production was yeah yeah and the the colors are really doing their best but you you wonder how this would have looked with some better paper and materials over at marvel yeah or an actual letterer. <laughs> yeah, goddamn. Yeah, but uh, I didn't really. G- I glance over Blue Beetle, but I don't have a lot to say there. What? Tell me about your Blue Beetle reading experience. Yeah, it was co-written by DC Glansman, uh, and Ditko obviously did the plotting here, as well as the character creation, design, and all that. His line work here is fantastic. You can definitely tell that. His line work had evolved over the past four years. Um, the biggest example, I think, is everything Blue Beetle here. Blue Beetle's design here is fantastic. It's very simple, but it's very, very timeless. Uh, it's got that like Spider-Man charm to it, where you know, like even a kid can draw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, like speaking of Spider-Man shit, he's definitely doing Spider-Man shit here with uh, with Blue Beetle. You know, like the dude is just flipping about. He's just like cracking quips. He's just flipping the shit around, <laughs> around his enemies, you know, like, the poses here are very, very wide and very, very loose, you know, there is an elasticity that you don't really get out of some of his later creations here, and uh, again with the Mr. A comparison, uh, the the shift in his mode of, of posing his characters is definitely palpable, even between Blue Beetle and The Question, to be honest. Um, but yeah, like other stuff, like there's the bug, which is his vehicle, which it, it's a very fun vehicle. You know, it feels very much like an HG Wells invention. Ditko's faces also have gotten a lot better. Uh, this is something that carries over to the question as well, but much more expressive and in, in many regards, much more pleasant to look at, like especially in comparison with some of the early some of the early uh, Amazing Spider-Man issues. The issue is also very lengthy. Uh, Like, for this issue, I think three quarters of it is Blue Beetle before we actually get to the question. And, yeah, he's employing a lot of seven, eight, and nine panel grids here, uh, which I found was interesting. You know, when he was doing Doctor Strange, he was pretty much at the whim of, I assume, again, we're, we're putting this in quotations here, but... Well, at the whim of Lee's uh, pan, uh, Lee's pacing, 
here. But, mm-hmm. you know, like here it feels like he is putting in more panels and condensing things a lot more while not loading it the same way uh, he front loads Mr. A. Yeah. Uh, which I find interesting because, you know, like it, it's very easy, very quick uh, reading for me. Uh in comparison to Mr. A, but at the same time, like it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's trying to speed through anything. Yeah, like the pacing here is is really really snappy. You know, like you you move from scene to scene without really lingering too long. It's nice, and it ends with uh, find out what happened to the old Blue Beetle next issue. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much all I have for the Blue Beetle side of this. Um, let's talk question. Yeah, uh, question. So, Lan mentioned offhandedly that there's a sort of conflicting account of the question versus Mr. A in terms of which came out first. And I just wanted to say that noted comics figure, historian, writer... Slash human encyclopedia. (laughs) Uh, Tom Brevort, uh, according to his website implies that uh, Mr. A came out before. He says that... So he made the question as a watered-down version of Mr. A. So I I don't know. I don't know if it's too relevant, but a lot of people act like he did Mr. A as kind of a response to the question. But they're really the same thing. It's not too relevant which one comes out first because they come out in such a, a close time frame. And just one is a little more restricted... I mean, he's not. He gets to do more at Charlton, but he really gets to go all out when he when he does Mister A. And I just yeah. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I think the other thing is also the element of repeated beats, not just between those two characters, but across all his characters. I think yes, in that sense, Doctor Strange is actually the odd one out where he feels the most unlike the other Ditko creations. Like Blue Beetle feels very much like a, a Spider-Man in in a sense, where he's like, he's actually like a proper synthesis between like Batman and Spider-Man. You know, very quippy, but also he's got all the tech and stuff um, to fight fight crime. But uh, yeah, with the question onwards, it really does feel like Ditko has maybe three <laughs> modes of writing, and yeah. and this is like one. Yeah, yeah, he's he's got his old standbys. Um, yeah, I mean, my first, you know, the the question is interesting because I had seen him a lot in other comics and in cartoons, and he's he's kind of like a, a fan favorite character at, at DC, uh, and it's it's a great concept. I think even in this book, it's a great concept. But reading this for me, it was it was really weak storytelling. Oh yeah, I, I've I had read the O'Neill Cohen. Sinkevich uh, run prior to this. And I had read the Rucka books uh, for uh, Rene Montoya's edition of the character. I haven't read much of the recent stuff. I, l- I read one issue of that uh, Lemire Black Label book, uh, and then I never ended up following up on that. But yeah, like I, I have a fair understanding of who Vic Sage is as a character. And going back to this, it's like, I, I can see which elements they decided to run with and which elements they decided to keep in 1967. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely got some of that objectivist 
philosophy in here, but again, it gets way bigger later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to synopsize this one a little bit just because I think it's really important for context. On our first page, we're introduced to our cast, and this is just a mess because half yeah, of these it's... characters don't matter, and then characters who do matter later are not introduced here. Yeah, we have like one panel dedicated to Aristotle here, and Aristotle does not show up in the book at all. He's mentioned offhandedly maybe in one panel throughout the entire thing, <laughs> yet he gets as much space as like... <laughs> he gets as much space as some of the other big players and he gets more space than the actual villain of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a mess. But yeah, this starts with um uh this this we're, we're introduced to these characters and then the son of the TV network is giving this speech and this league of women voters is saying, "Wow, he's he's so brave and cool and and good and full of integrity and it's it's a strange aside because it doesn't it ends up not really mattering the only it other kind of matters in the end i mean just in so far as like his reaction to how things end but like yeah it it, it does feel very much like a non sequitur in those early early pages it feels like a non sequitur but but with what we know about ditko and what we see in some of the other books i do feel we could argue that it's it's Ditko taking a jab at women voters or these at least these leagues or what they're representing. That's probably it, yeah. Because th- we found out that this son of the network does not have of, of the network's owner does not have the integrity of his father. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean the the main story beat is Vic Sage is is on TV and he's. He, he's doing this this report on gambling rigs and <laughs> this very Ditko move as he's reporting on the gambling rings. He's chastising the viewers. He's yeah. saying, this is your oh fault. <laughs> the reason the gambling rings are out of control in this city is because you keep visiting them. And then we It's the responsibility to... of the individual to make yes. sure that... <laughs> And then what's great is we cut to the people watching the TV, and they're, they're going... They're basically like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Dude. And they're making death threats against him, which rock. Yeah, that's awesome. Death threats are great, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the rest of it's a little by numbers, arguably. I mean, he he suits up. We don't really see how he's gotten this this faceless getup of the question we just hear that dr rodor provided it for him yeah i should um, say it's a belt that dispenses his disguise a mm-hmm. mask he wears mm. a mask and he transforms and there's smoke too mm, month of the mask part five month, it's mask never ended baby that month of the mask part five we thought it was over but we're back <laughs> henshin randian style <laughs> But he, he's he's called to be fired for how like how he's going off so much and and his his expose if you will, um, and the the network owner says like no I won't do it. So again, this is like men of integrity sticking up for each other. I think is yeah is the, really the true villain of this story is actually not uh, the leader of the gambling ring. It's actually the lack of journalistic integrity amongst mainstream media. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's yeah. He's he's he, the the owner's son wants him to be fired because 
someone who's friends with the network is like tied into the gambling ring i mean i know this all sounds really trite but this ties into later ditko stuff too and it's that he he really like you said he's only got three ideas here i think when you compare this to the creeper two, with the the two different paths he takes with those characters is certainly certainly interesting in juxtaposition with his own politics whereas like he, this feels much more like uh the journalists save the day you know at the end of the day things go well whereas creeper feels much more like a, a failure of the system creating the creeper mm-hmm um, yeah, this this is surprisingly optimistic for Ditko, I will say. Um, even more surprisingly optimistic than uh, Cohen and O'Neill's take on the character. Uh, and my my final note for this one is, uh, do you think Ditko ever watched Spotlight before he died? I don't know what that is. It's the uh, 2015 movie it, uh, about, uh, I think it's the Boston newspaper office that ended up... Uh, exposing uh abuse in the catholic church oh just just a very you know like uh journalists are the true heroes type movie i mean that would be his jam one thing that surprises me later is that he ends up coming out against the church yeah yeah i mean again like his politics are complicated i just i want to say that because sometimes complicated ends up being an adjective for like oh he makes good points no he doesn't make good points they're just not predictable it almost feels like Miller in some some regards, where sure, you're really just trying to piece together the the complex nature of what's going on here. You know, like some yeah. some things he'll be like, "Oh, okay, that's that's a reasonable take," but then other things you're just like, "Oh, what? what where did this come from?" <laughs> um, we both noted this, but none of us brought it up. Oh yeah, uh, the the line where the cop shows <laughs> up and he's like, "Hold it right there, buddy. We're police officers, and you're under arrest." Peak dialogue peak dialogue <laughs> uh, but uh but yeah that's that's pretty much all i have for the question what about you yeah i mean there's there's really not a lot here we hit most of the main points i the cops part is really important we see the cops called upon and respected a lot in these other stories and to that point i want to zoom out a bit and talk about who ditko was in his interactions with people so, do you know the character Peter Cannon Thunderbolt? Yes, I do. Uh, comics Twitter will not let me forget about them. Why? Whoa, what? Why, what? Uh, it's a long story. That's another episode. We can do a okay, whole fucking cool. episode on that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I know who Peter Cannon Thunderbolt okay. is. I'm not too familiar. I had to research the character a little bit. Aesthetically, he's a reboot of the Golden Age Daredevil. Uh, no relation to the 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 later Marvel Daredevil. And then he ends up being the inspiration for Ozymandias in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Yep. But um, the Peter Cannon Thunderbolt was created by Pete Morrissey over at Charlton. And what's important about Pete Morrissey is aside from up-and-coming comics artist, he also was a cop. And that's just a, a wild job combo right there. I just want to... I don't want to zoom past that too quick. Peter Morrissey walked so Tom King could run. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> we will get into that. But yeah, uh, they, you know, they talk to each other and a, a Ditko and Morrissey. And according to another coworker, uh, one time Ditko said to Morrissey, "I envy you." 
being a police officer, I would really enjoy the opportunity to arrest criminals. You know, if there's one sort of anecdote about Ditko that people should know, I mean, that's that's the one. Especially if you couple that with the fact that there's there's accounts that Ditko suffered from tuberculosis or something like that, which meant he was bedridden a lot of the time and suffered mm. really awful fevers and such as a result. So he's got this urge to be out there righting wrongs, dispensing justice, but he's, he's, he's bound by so his... so Miller could run. Right. <laughs> Ditko walk right, so a right. lot of people could run, apparently. <laughs> Exactly, and that's what I want to do with this episode is like, hey, look, this is kind of where a lot of that originates. And that is a great transition into Mr. A. Let's go. Another publisher Ditko was working for at this time was one Wally Wood. Maybe you've heard of him. Wood was publishing a new If you haven't, then what are you doing? Yeah, get your life together. Get your life together. Speaking of Daredevil and all that. Anyway, uh, Wood was publishing a new magazine called Witzend with a Z. Ditko wasn't the only artist to draw for the publication. We also had Bernie Wrightson, Frank Frazetta, Gil Kane, Art Spiegelman, Will Eisner, Jack Kirby, to name a few. All did some work for Witzend. While the pay was purportedly some of the lowest in the biz, an artist like Ditko had complete creative control, and this is key, including ownership right ownership rights to his own characters and stories. At a dollar per issue, the magazine sold for nearly ten times as much as its twelve cent floppy brethren. The idea was at that high price point. Witsend could be a collector's item for the reader and an exercise in freedom for the artists. Some might even call that business model a bad idea. Not us, though. No, us. we definitely would not. Definitely not we, a bad idea. No, not a bad idea at all. With Witsend, uh, Fanographics ended up collecting the first seven issues of Witsend in a slipcase hardcover in 2014. Uh, that has since gone out of print, and then they put out a best of edition in 2018. That has also since gone out of print. So if you're asking us how we read this issue, uh, stop. Stop asking questions. <laughs> See what I did there, Salt? Stop asking questions. That's it's what the they do sound the of my mind blowing. What the fuck is this? I'm sorry, I scrolled down. What is this? Please tell me what's going on here. Oh, okay, so yeah, with Wits End being more like magazine-like, each issue started with uh, like a letter <laughs> for the, from the editor. I see this, oh my um, god. Yeah, so, th- so this issue, which is issue number three of Wits End, started with the following blurb, which I'll read out for you. Uh, so there's three big, big lines in in bold that say bomb peking give indians the vote statehood for arkansas and then the actual letter starts and it says sure we could have opinions we could manufacture a point of view but the saturday review and the times have all the writers we wanted and second-rate words just take up space besides which we're not in the opinion business Witsend's function is to serve as a forum for the innovators of popular art for the benefit of the limited but ardent audience who who appreciate their efforts if our potential con- <laughs> sorry 
if <laughs> if our potential contributors have something to say, we're delighted to offer them the place to say it. And if they just want to show how well they can handle a brush, that's okay too. Our only criterion is quality in either case. Anyhow, who wants to look at a year-old Saturday review? Uh, Fun. Wow. There's no uh, attribution as to who wrote that, but there are two options. It's either Bill Pearson or Wally Wood himself. You have fun figuring out which. Yeah, uh, this is very much the mode of copywriting of uh, mid-90s video game magazine advertisements. Yeah. yeah like, what much. are you, a little pussy? Go play Super Mario. Yeah, what are you, a pussy that reads the New York Times? <laughs> wow, that was wild. Thank you for including that. Yeah, and that's not the only insane opening we get with this comic either. Oh, no, no. I, I think we need to read the opening of uh, Mr. A. Please do. Do you have it okay. open for you? Okay. I got it. I'm ready. <clears throat> Go for it. Fools will tell you that there can be no honest person, that there are no blacks or whites, that everyone is gray. But if there are no blacks or whites, there cannot even be a gray since grayness is just a mixture of black and white. So when one knows what is black, evil, and what is white, good, there can be no justification for choosing any part of evil. Those who do so are not gray, but black and evil, and they will be treated accordingly. I'm really looking forward to the day when this gets uh, edited out of context and someone gets to, to hear me ranting about the evilness of black. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, he, Ditka really wants you to, to know that black means evil. Mind you, this was a year before uh, Martin Luther King got assassinated. Yeah, um, that fucking monologue, I mean, uh, that that it sets the stage pretty well. I think it sets the stage pretty well for what we're about to deal with here. Uh, it really feels like he's losing his mind here. It it feels like his mind has regressed, honestly. I, yes. I know this later on, but it really does feel like this was a f an, an idea that 14-year-old Steve Ditko had, and he is just adapting it without actually like editing anything since he was 14. What, you want to read the Saturday review? Huh? What are you what are you a dumb schmuck? Don't you want to read my random ramblings that sound like a 14-year-old that just got access to Reddit? This thing is uh, fucking hard to read, man. I so the first time I read this, I was deep into comics Facebook and around the time they were like really uh, making this seem like a salacious thing like oh my god the co-creator of spider-man wrote this and uh, even back then i was like this just feels kind of cringe <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like i want to talk more about the art here because i think the art here is what's actually worth talking about here but yeah the story is just problem it's just stupid uh so yeah so speaking of the art uh this is where ditko really starts going crazy with the hatchwork uh you know this is still 1967 but like the comparison between the art here and the art in the question in blue beetle it's like almost night and day uh again he's working in black and white here so he's able to work with a lot more um a lot more heavy inks too 
but yeah, his hash work here is really, really impressive. Yeah, I mean, this thing gets dunked on a lot for how there's way too much text, and it deserves that dunk. But when he's not crowding his page with text, the compositions are fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, the lettering here and the grid work here is pretty boring. You know, the grid work is very much uh, perfunctory uh, in many many regards. And so is the lettering. But yeah, like when he actually actually lets the art breathe, it's, yes. it's really, really good. Yeah, the storytelling pacing in terms of the text sucks but i'm glad you mentioned the nine panel grid because we're talking about ditko's legacy a bit in this issue and even with an inferior story like this his nine panel grid arguably works better than a lot of successors again i'm looking at you tom king like (laughs) One thing Tom King doesn't get is that nine-panel grid is great for doing fast storytelling. Ditko can Mm. move through a lot of beats really quickly. So if Ditko's going to have a nine-panel grid and four of those panels are going to be exposition, well, five of them are going to be some form of action. Ditko would never do a nine-panel grid where, well, I'm going to amend it. I haven't read everything, but the majority of Ditko's work you're, you're rarely going to see a nine-panel grid that's characters talking. Even if it's characters talking, he's going to play with composition. It might not be terribly exciting, but he's not going to repeat poses a whole bunch. Uh, one thing about the poses here, it, it definitely feels a lot more restricted than all his other books, like even before and after. Um, again, like if we're going around the idea that this is around the same time that he is creating uh, Blue Beetle and the question... Uh, yeah, like the movements feel much more robotic. I know you, I know you got a point about uh, robot detective A here First and mashup. Yeah, it, it really does feel like Mister A is a robot. He has no like origin story. He has no personality beyond you know the objectivist um, philosophies here. But um, very boring character. Yeah. Like uh, the the. I get it. I get, you know, he wants to do the whole black and white thing, but black and white makes a story very boring. Have you ever considered that, Steve? It it makes it boring. And again, I've noted this in the other stories, but like, it's really hypocritical too, because he, it ends with him lecturing this woman, right? She, she's, uh, she's been stabbed by our villain, this young boy. And Mr. A gives her a dilemma, a choice. Do you want me to save him and let you die? Or do you want me to get you out of here and get you to a hospital and let him die? And because she's a fucking coward, a pussy, a lib. Yeah, she's a a stupid liberal teacher. (laughs) Big titty liberal teacher. Um, She, she's like, I don't know. This is, this is so much. And then. When she's overwhelmed with indecisiveness, he starts lambasting her for her inability to choose and basically telling her, well, because you don't want to live, you don't deserve to live. And what's what's so funny about that is if this was scripted slightly differently and she had said, oh, please let me live, I could easily see a character with the morality of Mr. A saying, oh, so you deserve to live. You get to choose, huh? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Like, it's... It, it, it blames people for inaction, much like with question and uh, the gambling ring, you know, like when he's 
when he's like lambasting those people for for not <laughs> being more proactive with uh the gambling ring it, it very much is like that same line of philosophy where if you're not being responsible for yourself as an individual you end up you're just going to end up harming your community um but obviously the community isn't the thing that he actually cares about it's the the individualism and the the rights of the individual uh, and in this case, the the big titty liberal teacher has no power as an individual, and that's the big issue here. Not that Angel is <laughs> Angel's doing evil, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, this thing's a doozy. I got nothing else here. Anything about Mister A before we move on? Uh, there's a panel where he punches Angel, the evil <laughs> villain boy character. Uh, it's really weird. Like yeah. the the crime that Angel has here is just petty petty theft i think yeah. right and he's no treated he killed like, a cop actually nah that's real like crime come on that's real the crimes. worst crime in ditko's world <laughs> oh yeah that's right you killed a hero um but uh yeah so anyways uh mr a's punching uh angel off a roof and angel's saying i'll kill you i'll kill anyone who gets in my way ah and then mr a says uh your goals were never realistic <laughs> Facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really important here how much we see uh, illogic as equated with emotion, right? Angel is called sensitive all the time, and the just is equated with the logical, with the rational. Yeah, and then uh, when big, I don't even remember her name, big titty liberal teacher says, you're cruel, you don't have any mercy or pity. Mr. A responds with, I don't abuse my emotions. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily, this isn't the nadir of the the a la carte selection we've got here. There's there's definitely worse oh. here, but before we get to worse, <laughs> Stick let's, with uh, us. Let's, uh, let's get creepy. Let's get weird. Let's get, let's get a little bit freaky. Ooh, Ooh. Beware. Beware, listener. We're fast-forwarding one year to April 1968 with uh, showcase number 73, which is the first appearance of The Creeper. Yeah, with the question, The Creeper and Hawk and Dove, um, you know, they don't achieve the same heights as Doctor Strange in terms of adaptations. And I just want to, before we get into The Creeper, like, talk about the adaptations he's, he's had and how it relates to Ditko. Tonally, a lot of those focus on him being a wild and crazy guy, but nearly all of them fail to capture the most deliberate aspect of this character, Ditko's paranoid politics and overall paranoid worldview. Yeah. Um, so, besides indie publishers, Ditko experimented with working at DC. Ditko's tenure at DC was a short one. It's logical to surmise he was frustrated for creative reasons, and the burnout is reflected in the subsequent Beware the Creeper series that ensued after the Creeper's showcase debut. While Beware the Creeper was a six-issue series ostensibly plotted and drawn by Ditko, you can see by issue five, he, his heart's not in it, as a, a ghost penciler has been hired and is drawing half the panels barely any Ditko pencils at all in that final issue. And, like, that's really key. Like, he wanted to launch series at DC, and he, he's just fucking over it before he even finishes the original six issues, right? Yeah. 
the Creeper experienced a multitude of reboots over the years. Some series built upon it and elaborated the Ditko lore, while other series went for more radical retcons, such as making writer's Creeper persona a failed recreation of the Joker, or in one instance, an actual demon from hell. Did you read any of those, Lan? Uh, I think I read the Cliff Chang take on it, uh, like a long, oh. long time ago, but I... That is uh, the I... best one. That is one of two I would recommend to people. That one rocks. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit edgy, but, um, you, you know... You're there like for a, Cliff. You're there for Cliff, and, and it's, it's good. Um, there was also the one from, I think, 2005 that was drawn by Justiniano. Fuck you, Justiniano, you fucking pedo. But uh, I didn't read that one. Uh, yeah, my, my creeper exposure is very much uh, very much limited, I guess. I, I I would at one point say this with some pride, but now only embarrassment that I am. I was at one point the greatest creeper fanboy in the world. A real creeper head, a real creep, a real weirdo. Yeah. What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> Um, so Don Seagal is credited in Showcase 73 as primarily being responsible for dialogue in the Creepers' debut, further reinforcing this is Ditko's book. Ditko, in the interview, says, I just want my work to speak for me, and that's all you get on the Ditko bio. There's a long Seagal bio that goes along with that, and most of it's not very interesting, but one part that's fascinating is it says Seagal worked as a producer for the Armed Forces Network when he was stationed in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> I, I didn't know the Armed Forces Network was a thing. <laughs> Damn, maybe if Steve Ditko just lived a bit longer, maybe he could have gotten one collab in with uh, Tom King. I know. Seems like they, he's, they... he's really, really fond of working with people who are either former cops or... Or former feds. Well, you know, I said I was the number one Creeper fanboy. Uh, what changed? That is the current. <laughs> what do you mean that's the current? Tom King. He loves the Creeper. Ah, yes. And you will see why soon enough. And oh, boy. Did you ask what changed? Is When I loved this character, I didn't... I didn't the politics went completely over my head. And oh, okay. Last note about the Creeper before we get into the issue itself is uh, just as Mr. A functioned as a creator-owned version of the question, Ditko also had a creator-owned version of the Creeper called Shag. Looked exactly like the Creeper, published black and white, much like Mr. A. Oh, interesting. I actually had no idea about Shag. All right, so had you read this book before this episode? No. All right, no, what was it like for you? Um, It was... So I read this after I'd read or reread uh, Mr. A. So like what I mentioned with the Hatchwork before, you know, like seeing that carrying over into a colored series, um, it, it's good. It's good. You know, he's the one big thing I want to say here is his panel work here. He has really started going into five and six panels, much bigger panels than his previous more condensed work. He's allowing his room to. He's allowing his work to to breathe a lot more with these uh, with these comics. Uh, yeah, yeah, the art's good. The art's really really good here. Uh, it really feels like his art has maybe even reached an apex here. <laughs> I guess because it, it's definitely going downhill after this one. And <laughs> but yeah, like of the I think six books that we read here. 
I think this one definitely has the best art. I I would say this is a masterpiece. I mean, there's so many great panels here, even with some of the more rote expository stuff. And anytime the creeper is on the page, it's just incredible poses. I mean, that was why I love this book so much initially. Um, yeah, it just, feels like a lot of the best poses from his work on Spider-Man and, and Blue Beetle yeah. all put at work here. Did you catch that panel where the Creeper is standing uh, like outside and his cape is blowing in the wind? Yes, I did. Big anime so good. vibes there. So sick. So good. He's got his back to the the viewer? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Really cool. Um, you know, in terms of story here, we, we broke down everything with the question before to provide context for this. It starts almost exactly the same. He is a carbon copy of Vic Sage in terms of personality and career. Yeah. But there is one key difference. <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's a failure. <laughs> he's a failure. And he's a failure because he works at a woke TV network. Whereas Vic Sage was not fired because his boss was an upstanding gentleman, Jack Ryder is fired for giving a hard time to his guest. His guest is saying, hey, you know, cops can actually create more problems than they solve. And, and Jack says, like, oh, well, you, you would think doctors want more diseases. And the network freaks out. They say, whoa, our lead sponsor is friends with that guy. You can't say that shit, Jack. And so Jack Ryder is uh, fired for speaking truth to power. Um, yeah, RIP Jack Ryder. You would have loved Blue Check Twitter. I was going to say, RIP uh, Jack Ryder. You would have really loved Tucker Carlson. Yes. Yeah, he's a progenitor, Tucker Carlson. Definitely more. To get Jack Ryder walks, so Tucker Carlson would would run. <laughs> so that's I think something really unique I want to contribute here is: Do you know much about William F. Buckley? A bit, a tiny bit. I I've reread this issue so many times, and on my previous reread, that finally sparked for me. I I realized Ditko was probably watching a lot of TV, and writer had to be William F. Buckley. And it, at first, I, it was just the timing that Buckley's show was really big in the 1960s. For the viewers at home, William F. Buckley is a uh, prolific conservator he, a conservative he's sometimes referred to as the godfather of the modern conservative movement he's not a neocon uh he sucks but he's not a neocon um so the thing with buckley is besides being this conservative uh he this this big conservative tv personality buckley also was in the cia briefly which will matter greatly for the creeper later and then you know even with that i thought eh, maybe that's all a little tangential but this is a note i took about the uh william f buckley's 1965 mayoral campaign for new york buckley explicitly made defense of the police and resentment of the poor his core issues on the subject of cops Buckley vowed that under no circumstances must the police be encumbered by such political irons as civilian review boards. Buckley demanded a much larger police force, enjoined to lust after the apprehension of criminals. 
And for me, that really clinches my theory that Ryder is Buckley. Mm. Uh, I don't think Ryder goes on to uh, touch any little boys like allegedly uh, Buckley did. Allegedly, of course. Allegedly, of course. But yeah, the uh, politics in this are atrocious. It's absolutely god awful. Just terrible. Terrible. You thought Mr. Ray was bad. (laughs) This is so much of that. That's what's wild, dude, about you, your fucking facebook book saying your facebook group saying look how crazy this is beware the creeper is way more reactionary than mr a yeah this definitely feels like something that you know like you could (laughs) you know if dc was really smart they would have adapted this in 2003 before uh the u.s went into went into (laughs) iraq you know like a whole creeper (laughs) reboot where instead of uh mccarthyism they're doing like post 9-11 islamophobia and oh, it, that's the series Tom King dreams of writing. Mm, there we go. Tom, there. you don't even have to credit us for that one. <laughs> you can have that for free. You can have that one for free. I definitely don't want it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, the McCarthyism here. Yes. I, I really, really, really want to talk about the McCarthy, McCarthyism here because it really feels like Ditko is yearning for an era where he could just throw in political dissidents uh, into a, <laughs> a, a fucking meat grinder. Uh, holy shit. Like, it starts off, like, obviously, it starts off pretty bad, right? You know, you got all the stuff with all the pro cops stuff and all that. Um, but then you get into the commies. So Jack Ryder gets recruited, <laughs> recruited by the CIA, and his key first key plot point, a very key plot point. He gets re- recruited by the CIA, and he is working with the CIA to deport communists uh, for them. And a part of that is uh, saving a professor that has been kidnapped by the under underworld gang. The yeah, that's a key Angel. plot point too, because the the professor is a defector. He has fled yeah. the tyranny of the Soviets, but now the 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 mobsters are in league with the communists to return the professor to the Soviet bloc. Which also doesn't make sense because isn't that also what the CIA wants to deport him back to the Soviet bloc? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's again a recurring theme here is, you know, accusing the other side of the things that you will do. Ryder gets to this professor, Professor Yats, I believe. Yeah, right? they all have like four letter names in this. Four letter names, yeah. So Professor Yats gives him the serum which gives him his powers as well as a device. And the device is like I think in a vacuum it would be fine as like a hokey you know silver age science bullshit device um the whole thing is like it uh it teleports your clothes off your body so you can like disguise yourself etc etc um but then (laughs) but then ditko decides to take the most like paranoid approach to it like it's pure 
McCarthy era paranoia, which of course obviously evolved into 2000s Islamophobic uh, Al Qaeda paranoia. You know, this idea mm-hmm. that like our enemies can disguise themselves as our own people with, and bring in their their weapons of mass destruction and blah blah blah. blah you know, like mm-hmm. it, there is such an insane fear of the enemy and the enemy here obviously being the commies i think we need to read that panel you're talking about i have it here in the doc yes yeah so uh the professor gives the transformation device to jack Ryder, and he says he says to jack if perfected this device will revolutionize mass transportation it would rearrange the molecular structure of matter making it weightless and invisible Whole armies could be sent into foreign countries as normal tourists, with their invisible uniforms and equipment. Then at the right moment, my device could be activated, and the hidden army could be assembled for conquest. That is how my enemies hope to use it. To which Jack replies, I can understand why the Reds want it, but we can't let them get it. Uh, in, in the panel, we see a, uh, a soldier transforming Kirby Dots all around him, and then he's disguised as a regular guy, a tourist. Yeah, this this comic walked so Secret Invasion could run. Yeah, I mean that's that's why I wanted to include this one. There are so many current stories and themes that we see all in here. Like this this there's a lot going on here, and I think this book gets written off for just being dreamlike. Again, it's dreamlike, but there there is substance. It's shitty substance, but there's substance. And the Secret Armies thing is fascinating because it's that paranoia you're talking about. Oh, your fucking Muslim neighbors might be planning to blow up your dog. Like, that's what's going on here. But it's got a dual meaning. It's also accusing the enemies of doing the thing you want to do. I mean, 1960s, Secret Armies. Like, this is exactly what the CIA was doing to the Global South. Like, this is a fucking wild book, man. It, and, again, when you think about, like, everything that leads up to that moment, it it's such a roller coaster of being, like, this goofy thing where Ryder, like, picks up a Halloween costume and makes it his, like, superhero costume, essentially. <laughs> and then, immediately, it, it dovetails into... <laughs> complete paranoid right-wing rhetoric is there anything you want to get to with the art the art there's some really cool stuff going on with the colors here um like when he is fighting the underworld gang and the first three panels are are this like purple almost mauve-ish uh wash and then it completely washes over in green and, and like lime green yeah, I don't I don't have too much else for the creeper. Anything else you want to say before we move on? No, I uh, I think from this point onwards we're really just starting to get to a point where Ditko has sort of regressed into his third <laughs> mode now uh, and this next one really will will, will well, showcase the, that. The one. perfect segue is this ad. Yes. Yes, this this issue actually ends with an ad. <laughs> which is so it ends with an ad for the next creation steve ditko like lightning strikes again the (laughs) hawk and the dove coming soon and 
coming soon it did two months later uh in june of 1968 yeah oh boy uh, hawk and dove maybe hawk steve Ditko's masterpiece his, his true masterpiece two issues later in in that very same comic showcase number 75 uh steve ditko decided to oh uh, god okay um <laughs> your notes here are everything i kind of just want to uh <laughs> I guess we should do some of the, the background stuff. Yeah, we should probably do some of the background stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so much like The Creeper, I wanted to talk about reboots and adaptations. Um, in With reboots and adaptations of Hawk and Dove, Hawk is often portrayed as rash and quick to anger, with the mm-hmm. more cool-headed Dove depicted as a reasonable foil to Hawk. Like, you know, they each kind of make good points. Sometimes even Dove is portrayed as the smarter of the two, I'd argue. Not so in the Ditko series. Not so. Hawk is aggressive because war is cool and good. Dove is a coward and a pussy because Dove lacks the balls, the testicular fortitude to appreciate war on Southeast Asia. He's a yeah, he's an so idiot. Again, this is he's 1968, so we got we got the we got Vietnam to worry about, folks. We mm-hmm. got we got all the stuff in Cambodia to worry about. We got to worry about all these these uh. Uh, I don't know. Just the damn generic. blue hairs don't want you to go fight your just war in Cambodia. Yeah, you, the freaking liberals don't want you to don't want you to endorse Henry Kissinger's actions. Um, so, like with the creeper, Ditko was very over DC. Like as soon as he got there, basically. Uh, the difference here is whereas Ditko starts checking out during issue five of the creeper. Uh, he's fucking done by the end of issue two of Hawk and Dove. You get a whole new penciler by issue three. (laughs) I wonder why. Um, yeah, and it's, there, there are, a lot of this stuff is alleged, it's hard to source, but there are reports that his co-writer wanted to give Dove a bit more dignity. Um, and then, you got a note about Giordano here. Yeah, so... After this, he took a quick little uh, little uh, break from DC, let's say. And as he was doing that, he uh, did his old buddy at Charlton, Dick Giordano, a favor by recommending him uh, to the folks at DC, which obviously event, which which then led to Giordano um, working his way up the ranks and becoming managing editor at DC. Giordano. Um, is more or less responsible for, or in part responsible for the creation of Crisis on Infinite Earths. So, if you have anyone to to blame for the proliferation of multiverses in the past decade, uh, blame Steve Ditko. I think that's a really <laughs> cool person that you can you can blame for all this. So Ditko did eventually come back to DC to do Shade the Changing Man in 1977, and then from that point onwards, he was basically just uh, bouncing around from publisher to publisher, uh, even going back to Marvel, and then retiring in 1998. But yeah, Showcase, <laughs> but yeah, Showcase 75 is another one of those like launching off points for for new characters and. For some reason, they thought it would be smart to launch Hawk and Dove off of this this issue. I love your first note here. Can you read that? 
Yeah, I, <laughs> my first note here is the virile masculine hawk and the sissified effeminate dove. Because <laughs> Don is such a bitch in this book. Don is such a bitch. That's my second note. <laughs> <laughs> Point one. <laughs> Point it's one, Hawk is, Hawk is a virile, masculine jock. And point two, Dove is a, a bitch, a cowardly bitch. It's staggering how hard this book sucks. Because you get to, like, page three, and you're like, this can't get worse. And it gets so much worse. It is, I think they should just dump the entire Hawk and Dove IP. I don't think, there's rarely been a time when it's been done right. Uh, and honestly, the, the amount of times that these two characters have actually been done right is not enough to justify all the to- times that they've been done wrong. So uh, if I were DC, I would have never done this issue at all. <laughs> uh, I would have never created, let <laughs> let Ditko create these characters at all. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a very I mean, cursed IP. And the irony there is they've gotten as much or maybe even more reboots and adaptations than either the question or the creeper it's wild it's it's wild they keep fucking saying hawk and dove this is the year of the hawk and the dove like we got a fucking live action hawk and dove like that that is insane this book opens with something dicko loves um fucking chastising anti-war protesters as we saw in his spider-man run uh the we have hank it's like a prologue basically you know like the so the way he splits it up is that there's a prologue where it's just Don and Don is in D O N here. This is the brother, not Don uh, McGregor, I think. No, there's two characters. Both their names are Don, spelled differently. One's a man, one's a woman. Uh, this is the male Dove we're talking about here. But anyways, it's Don and Hank, the alter egos of Dove and Hawk specifically. Uh, or respectively, uh, that are here in their civvies prior to becoming heroes, talking about the the most pressing issue for for college age uh, men: uh, Are you going to be a pussy and not support the war, or are you going to be a pussy and support, or not going to be a pussy and support the war? Well, and even worse too. I mean, we'd seen him do that before, but later in the book, he implies that these these anti-war press protesters are really agitators. That yeah, they're, they're like there bad to actors. cause problems. Yeah, they're bad actors. They're there to, to, to start violence. They're there to throw rocks. They're there to just be shitheads. Yeah, and then so after that, we get into the bulk of our story. We have a, a judge uh, Irwin overseeing Hall. a case. Erwin Hall, upright man, and he he's standing he's up. He's the father of the two two protagonists here. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's going off about the little man, the small shop owner. Yeah, he's yeah. like he's the protector of small businesses, but also he's like an anti Uncle Ben. I found. Oh, that's <laughs> like this, a good point. It, it, I was comparing this to Spider Man in many regards because of what you said about the um, the anti war protester stuff, and like Irwin Hall definitely does feel like an antithesis to Uncle Ben. You know, like both in the tragedy tragedy that he befalls and his overall like feelings towards Hawk and Dove. Uh, yeah, a bit of a stooge, bit of a yeah. bit of a square, bit of a stickler. Because Irwin Hall is handing down this pretty heavy sentence on this crook who was uh, 
running protection rackets and fucking over small business owners, this crook's extended gang decides to get back at Irwin Hall, and they they throw a fucking grenade into his chambers, like, after the case. Yeah, and um, he somehow and, survives it. He right. gets, like, shrapnel stuck in his back, and he still ends up surviving. Right, and so the uh, the boys decide to, well, Hank decides to go after these criminals. And yeah, meanwhile, meanwhile, our, our our little pussy bitch Don is, is has decided to put his faith in the cops. If right. there's three things you can say about Don in this entire issue, it's that a he trusts cops way too much, uh, b he's a coward, uh, and 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 thirdly, uh, he he's a bitch. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wrote and for the and I cover. feel for him because I don't want him to be a bitch. I want right. him to be like the rational of the two. But Ditko seems so hell bent on Don being like an ineffectual, spineless liberal, essentially. Right. I I'm really glad you mentioned that. That really ties back into the the guy that Jack Ryder was talking to at the beginning of his TV show, because that dude shows up later in the book and he says, let's call the cops when shit gets really hairy at the party, which what he has in common with Don here, this, this point is, Oh, you don't like the cops, but you will call the cops when you're in trouble. So you yeah. don't actually believe in anything. That's, that's what Dicko's saying with the dawns of the world. Exactly. Uh, and on the cover, I wrote major cock shame from from Don. Like, yeah, he, just, he's such a doofus here. And honestly, the 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 costume design speaks to it as well. Like, you can make a, a dove themed costume look cool, but like, even the eyes, you know, like Hawk here has yes. these whited out eyes. There, he looks cool. It almost feels like strong. a progenitor to how cre- creators made comics or comic creators made characters in the 90s whereas don here has his eyes visible through his mask you can see like the irises and the pupils here and yeah he just ends up looking like someone that was that lost a dare essentially and was forced to wear this costume the hawk has lots of sharp points sticking yeah, out from his costume flowy points whereas everything on dove is Pretty much round, like soft, onto his body. weak, effeminate. Yeah, no hanging bits whatsoever. <laughs> hanging no. bits are cool and good and masculine. And I don't know if it's just me, but like it looks like Don, or sorry, it looks like Hawk has more of a bulge here than. Yes. Not not that. to like be cock obsessed here, but y- you know it really does look like. Uh, <laughs> it really does look here like Dove is is tucking. You know, yeah. uh, I'm a major supporter of Tuckers. If you're a Tucker, uh, power to you. I'm, I don't engage in that. But, you know, if you tuck, that's cool. But, you know, in this case, uh, maybe Ditko's saying that if you if you tuck, you... This has gone too long. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, what else sucks in this book besides the politics, which we will come back to, is the art. The art is so fucking bad here. Which is crazy because it's almost at the same time as the creeper, which is gorgeous. Uh, just the faces are fucking weird. The poses are uninspired. It it's just bad. I I don't have anything 
more to say there. He's just clearly phoning it in, which is weird. Just feels like he's regressed back to his earlier style without any of like the stuff that made his earlier stuff cool. Like the the eyes here are very beady. Um you know, like Hawk uh or Hank, I should say, uh looks very much like a jock version of Peter Parker. Yeah. Um Yeah, it it really is just like Peter is Hank and then Harry Osborne is uh Don. Is this just Steve Ditko being like if if I was in charge Flash Thompson would be uh the fucking <laughs> pussy bitch and and Peter would be the virile man. I don't know if that's the philosophy he's going for here but um, I'm so glad to hear you go Galaxy Brain Land. I'm, I, I'm, I'm here like, for it. Like I this book has got me like questioning Ditko's motives more than any other book. This book has got me questioning Ditko's motives more than Mr. A did. <laughs> maybe that's maybe Mr. A is good at that and that it's very uh very front-facing about what its ideals are, but here uh, just a complete labyrinth of the mind here as to Ditko's creative process here. Yeah. Um, the art here, yeah, it's yeah, it, it's it's bad. <laughs> it's, and, like it's serviceable, I guess. It's serviceable, maybe. I think maybe the moment that pisses me off the most in this book, like I'm I'm used to his politics. He can't really say anything that'll make me really mad in the politics. But w- one thing that fucking enraged me in this book was the scene where the boys go, "I wish we had powers," and then the voice shows up. Yeah. Uh, and just we don't even get like any explanation as to who the voice is or what the voice's like whole deal is. Yeah, it's just now you have powers and the voice like lectures them for like two and a half pages about how to use their powers, but there's nothing substantive in there. I mean, yeah, there's late... no like we we get their powers or like the difference in their powers based off of like how they react to certain situations, but aside from that, like the 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 voice basically goes yeah you have powers that will allow you to um allow you to live out everything that you you ever wanted to do or some some shit like that no specifics whatsoever yeah i mean later this gets retconned into the lords of order and chaos which is a corner of dc lore i don't really know much about but uh, there's there's nothing here. Like Land said, DC should not have taken a chance on publishing this, and they should not continue to try to reboot it. This is terrible and cursed. Yeah. Uh, one more thing about the art here is that Ditko's really, really, really fucking trying to make Dove look ineffectual when he's fighting, and it just ends up leading to some of the worst poses he's ever done. Like the, yeah. it's the all disconnected art, and floaty. The art is taking a hit because of how obsessed Ditko is with making uh Hawk or making Dove look like a bitch. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is bad. And then it ends with Irwin, their father, lambasting Hawk and Dove's vigilante tactics, which I thought was a the real shit car- a cherry on this shit cake. <laughs> yeah, it's a you shit know, like- cherry. He's saying like, "Oh, actually you're both wrong, but the text has proven that Hawk is the more effective actor of the two. Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> like it would it would be nice if there were were more moments or really any moments where Don had a point, but like Ditko was not interested at all at letting Don have a point. <laughs> have have you seen that uh pro Z D sketch where it's like showing your friend a character who's really cool in an anime? Yes, I have. Mm, I don't know about this guy. I'm scared. I don't want to do it. I'm too scared. This guy fucking sucks. No, he, he, he gets better. Oh, I'm scared. I'm going to run away. Don't run away, Benji. Couldn't we need you? Are you kidding? Fuck this guy. Okay, he's pretty bad right now, but he gets way better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he gets really cool later, man. Trust me. Yeah. Like, that's what DC did with Dove. <laughs> oh. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I, um, that was Ditkoology. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Steve Ditko, you're fucking crazy. Rest in peace, I think. (laughs) Maybe. This definitely got me questioning whether you should be resting in peace or not. Questioning. Wow. 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 Yeah. This this series has got me creeping on on whether or not Ditko should be resting in peace or not. Yeah, I mean, like Lan said, it's very easy for us to just return to the same points with these books as Ditko reproduces a lot of the points, but we could do another of these series because even though Ditko himself is quite predictable for the most part, it's interesting to see how some of these story ideas are progenitors of stuff we see now, right? Like the I mean, even for the predictable elements, run. he's still pretty unpredictable in many other ways you know and uh, again everything that we've covered today was just from 1963 to 1968 that's only five years and a guy whose career lasted over 30 years you know and i guess we will uh we might revisit this in the future we'll see we'll see sound off in the comments yeah maybe we'll talk about that one time that ditko did power rangers comics (laughs) so if you want to you want to hear about that then uh i I can't wait for the red ranger to talk about the justifications of going to war (laughs) against rita repulsa while the coward and the effet pussy blue ranger says (laughs) how much effeminate billy cranston (laughs) (laughs) cock shamed blue ranger (laughs) Uh, well, before we close out, we, we've got our recurring feature, our Tastemaker's Grab Bag. Uh, Lan, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so over the past week or two, I started rereading Mob Psycho 100. I'd read the first two volumes prior, but I, I, <laughs> I picked up a habit uh, during the pandemic of buying books and not reading them. So I had accumulated... Uh, a solid 12 volumes of this uh, 11 volumes of the main series and then one spin-off uh, book but now I'm six volumes in and this book is fucking fantastic this is this is true comics baby this is true comics many people might be turned off by the crude nature of the art but I honestly think that there's no way that the average layman can can replicate the art that one is doing here you know like there is a clear understanding of the mode the form um even like small techniques um that you know your average beginner comic artist might not even think to uh to incorporate into their work so yeah it's it's a good it's a good comic it's uh really really funny 
And, you know, when it hits those emotional beats, it, it really hits hard. Speaking of things that hit emotional beats hard and very well, I watched Asteroid City a week ago, and that was pretty good. Wes Anderson, you've done it again. Uh, with all that jazz about, you know, like people replicating Wes Anderson's style and all, all that shit, I watched two Wes Anderson movies over the past week, and it, it really just goes to show how little these people actually understand Wes Anderson's style and like how little of his movies actually look like the stuff that they're trying to, to do there. Um, in asteroid city. Yeah. Like uh, the, the artistry and just the cinematography there is just done so, so well. I haven't seen asteroid city yet, but one part of Wes Anderson that, these fucking AI and TikTok chuds don't understand is that as a director, uh, he's not just responsible for composing a shot. Wes is also directing his actors. And regardless of what you think of Wes Anderson, he elicits really dedicated, specific performances from his actors. I haven't seen any of that from the Wes Anderson wannabes. Exactly. But yeah, that's, uh, that's it for, from me this week uh salt what do you have i've got i'm a virgo uh, oh yes series you, you should watch it i'm uh, I'm, uh, I'm only a couple episodes in but it's uh i love it so it's good. uh it's new boots riley series if you've seen uh sorry to bother you this has a lot of similar themes in it but there's there's a lot of good stuff for especially our dear listeners uh we've got friends of the pod Ramon Villalobos and Dan McDade, amongst many other talented artists, contributed designs and artwork for the show, um, particularly for the hero played by the one and only the goat, Walton Goggins. So uh, fucking good, man. He he, I I love that man. Love watching him on screen. Uh, really ties into Dick Coology. He's essentially a character that asks. What if Steve Ditko became the real Mr. A? Uh, it's a really fun yeah. <laughs> idea and performance. <laughs> and my second recommendation, also speaking of Walton Goggins, is the new season of Righteous Gemstones. God damn, uh, so I still funny. need to catch up, man. Where are you at? I'm still on, like, I'm halfway through season one. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah so it'll be fun. I, yeah, when I when I get to the end there, I'll I'll I'll, I'll reiterate in a future tastemakers grab bag to watch our righteous gemstones. Excellent. Yeah, but guess what, folks? We uh we're on the new site, the new bastion, Woo! apparently, according to everyone that we follow. Um, blue sky, blue sky, folks. We're on blue sky now. Uh, so if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us both on Twitter at land tweets l-a-n-t-w-e-e-t-s and salt m bank s-a-l-t-m-b-a-n-k or you can follow us on blue sky i'm lan skeets at blue sky so l-a-n-s-k-e-e-t-s and salt is uh he's the same he's the same s-a-l-t-m-b-a-n-k so yeah, and Land made a page for the actual pod, so you can that's follow the true pa- the pod on Blue Sky. But you can follow the pod at m grappler animals uh, dot blue sky dot social or whatever the 
tagline there is, uh, yeah, apparently Midnight Grappler Animals was too long a username, so... We're too powerful M- to be contained. M! Just M! Grappler Animals uh, will be enough to search up uh, the podcast's page there. Uh, for you blessed few that have access to Blue Sky. Um, but yeah, if you don't want to find us there, but you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Midnight Grappler Animals. $1 a month gets you show notes for all our main episodes, and $5 a month gets you two bonus episodes a month. Two bonus episodes a month. You're effectively getting a weekly show if you sign up for our bonus episodes, even though we even though we post previews, you know, effectively making this so anyways if you have questions comments or suggestions for the show you can email us at midnight grappler animals at gmail.com so if there's a topic that you really really want us to talk about you should either email us there or come talk to us in our discord server also linked in the description below uh great place great people you should come by and uh Yeah, if you can't do any of that, but you still want to support us some way, somehow, please just give us a good review on our on on your podcast app of choice. Uh, Like I said before, uh, hopefully our our inability to do math isn't a detriment to your review. Please give us positive reviews. Um, And yeah, that is it. Thank you again for sticking around. And will you see you with the next one, whether that be a bonus episode next week or two weeks from now for our next episode. We'll see you next time. Keep on grappling. Where'd you get that belt buckle? Frankie. I rose out of my spotless